The reading for this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll be continuing in our series on the life of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4. We read there, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may be saved, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter. And there fell of, the, of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the men came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God 
that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by to her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, today, as we look at our passage, ask yourselves the question, are you fighting using the Lord? Or are you fighting dependent on the Lord? Is the Lord my tool? Or is he my rock to whom I flee? Our passage today begins in an interesting spot. We have a phrase at the beginning of this chapter that seems almost out of place here. and seems like a carryover from the last chapter. We read there, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The rest of this passage says nothing about Samuel at all. So why is this here? Why is it necessary to include this bit of information? There's a good reason why it wasn't simply left as a conclusion for the last chapter. Verses 19 to 21 of the last chapter give us a bit of a summary of what happened there. We read there, so Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. This was after he gave the prophecy to Eli that his sons would be judged for their wickedness and that the Lord would destroy their house. We read, so Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And isn't that enough for a conclusion? It is. And so we see that this passage here, as we begin in the next part, the word of Samuel came to all Israel acts like a bridge to the next passage. This verse bridges these two passages, and it's actually very important that it does so, because this passage, this verse, lays the foundation for the disaster that's coming. It's bringing back to mind for the people who are reading this the prophecy of Samuel regarding the priesthood and Eli, and the judgment that hangs over Eli's two sons here, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, the Israelites went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped near Ebenezer. And the Philistines camped on the other side of the border there in Aphek. 
The Philistines, they've just put themselves into battle array and the Israelites are busy doing that on the other side. The place that the Israelites have picked is significant. Ebenezer means rock of help. And it becomes clear in our passage that the help of the Lord was important to the Israelites. They knew in a general sense that they needed God to fight. And they wanted every extra point of leverage that they could get. Surely God would help if they chose the location right. Surely God would help at the very place that was named the Rock of Help. But it didn't help. Instead, 4,000 of them died. And then you can see a fascinating response from them. They cry out, Why has the Lord defeated us today from before the Philistines? You see, they recognized that it was the Lord who had defeated them. It wasn't the Philistines. It wasn't the failure of their own weapons. It wasn't the failure of their own men. They say, the Lord defeated us. They had come there expecting to have the promises of the Lord fulfilled for them. The promises that God had given them in Exodus 23, verse 20, saying, little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. They could also call to mind the command that Moses had given them in Deuteronomy 6, verse 19, to cast out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. Finally, Moses confirmed this command. With the words of Deuteronomy 7, verse 22, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you. And historically speaking, they had no reason to doubt this. You'll notice that the numbers of the enemy soldiers weren't included. It doesn't tell us how many of the enemy soldiers were fighting against Israel. And there was a good reason for this. It's because at this point in Israel's history, numbers didn't mean a thing. Israel had won in the face of overwhelming odds before. Just think of how Gideon drove out the Midianite army, thousands upon thousands, with just 300 men. As long as the Lord was fighting for them, they could be certain of victory. But the Lord was fighting against them today. Now, normally, failures are a time for us to take stock and to reevaluate. They aren't times to double down on what we're already doing. But sadly, that's exactly what Israel did. If their leaders had taken a moment to think back in history beyond simply the promises of God to be with them wherever they went and to reflect on the last time that something like this had happened, things might have ended up differently. The last time that Israel had run into a situation like this, they had just finished miraculously crossing the Jordan, and they had defeated the armies of Jericho. They were feeling pretty good about themselves. And they were setting up for their next campaign against the city of Ai because it was such a tiny little city. They were feeling good about it. Just send up three or 4,000 men, they said. That should take care of it. 
But then they ran into trouble. Open to Joshua 7 with me for a moment. And keep your place in our passage because we'll be getting back to it shortly. But open up to Joshua 7 with me. Page 252 of your pew Bible. Joshua 7, and we'll start at verse 4. We read there, So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. 36 men. This doesn't sound like a lot, does it? Especially if you consider that it was three or 4,000 men who went up against the city. But they knew. They knew what happened and they knew why. Their hearts melted in fear and they fled. And this made them realize that it was the Lord who had turned against them. So what was their response? Well, take a look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. This is what should have been the response of Israel. They should have feared and wept and prayed. They should have inquired of the Lord. Because what did Joshua discover when they inquired of the Lord? We read there, In verse 10, the Lord responds to them, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them, for they have taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have put it among their own stuff. They had sinned, and the Lord had turned against them. He had confronted them, and he rebuked them for their sin. And it was asking the Lord what they had done that spared them from further disaster. If Israel had taken the time to do that in Samuel's time, they might have discovered the same thing. And here's where that first verse of our chapter in Samuel ties in. Here's where that first verse ties in. We read in verse 1 that the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, that was the case in a general sense, certainly. But it would have been specifically true for the judgment proclaimed against the wickedness of Eli and his sons as well. These were the spiritual leaders of the nation. What impacted them impacted everyone. They might think that their sin was just between them and their father, and The judgment might be just between them and God. They might think it's just a family issue and no one else's business. But the truth is that no matter who you are, stubborn sin impacts your whole community. But here Israel was only interested in results. They didn't want to get to the heart of it. They were only interested in the outcome. And isn't that so often us? We shudder to think of it. But that's the truth. That's so often us. 
Self-examination was too hard for them. They would much rather be able to look at the instructions, follow a few steps, and then have the same outcome as those steps predicted. So what do they do? What do they say? They say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. No, no, and no again. That is the wrong reaction to this situation. But what is it that was so wrong about it? Let me explain. The Israelites recognized their problem. They recognized that they had an issue and that the Lord was not behind them but was in fact against them. So what went wrong? What was their response? It was oh, we need to be just like Moses. To get God on our side, we need to be more like Moses. What did Moses say? Numbers 10, the verses 35 to 36. So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Their response was, we need to be like Moses. We need to get the ark and so let everyone know that the Lord is with us. After all, Joshua took the ark when crossing the Jordan. He took it into battle against Jericho. Moses in his day called to the Lord and said, whenever the ark set out, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. That's the outcome we want, so those are the steps that will follow. And how often don't we do that ourselves today as well? We say, be like Ruth. Become a leader like Nehemiah. Let's teach a course on that. Leadership like Nehemiah. Dare to be a Daniel. But what are we so often saying when we do this? We're saying, take these steps, the same series of steps that they took, and you'll have the same outcome as they did. Be a leader like Nehemiah, and it doesn't matter where your heart is, you'll have the same outcome that Nehemiah had. And that's quite often the problem with preaching in churches across North America today. We're saying, be like this biblical character, or be like that one. We're saying, if you follow the steps that this person took, you'll have the same outcome as they did. Our preaching becomes moralistic and steps-based because we're looking at the person instead of at the God who stood behind them. We're not recognizing that these are flawed people. We're not recognizing that God worked through them despite their failures. Because it was God who was carrying out his plan in redemptive history to choose a people for himself. Instead, we're saying, be like them. But then the Bible becomes a disjointed list of moral stories instead of a narrative of a God who is working out his plan to redeem a holy nation for himself. It becomes a resource of people who you have to copy instead of a description of a God who leads, who sovereignly guides, who protects and who preserves his people throughout history. 
from the beginning of the world to its end. Now, we can learn from figures in the Bible. That's certainly true. We can even copy them in the things that are good. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But if we just use them as a model for success without looking to the God behind them and without submitting our hearts to Him, it'll be a disaster. Why? Because then it becomes self-help. And that was what it was for the people of Israel in our passage today. It was, if we follow these steps and we declare the same thing to the Lord, then the Lord will help us win no matter the cost. This is arm-twisting, not worship. This was using the Lord instead of relying on the Lord. When you go into a situation and say, if I do these exact steps, then the Lord will do X for me. If I do these exact steps at school, then the Lord will keep this person from bullying me. Or the Lord will keep me from bullying other people. If I do these exact steps in my marriage, then the Lord will make things better for me. If I do these exact same steps in my relationship with my girlfriend, then the Lord is guaranteed to let that be an outcome of marriage and everything will be fine right from the beginning to the end. But the thing is, if I, you say, if I do these steps, then the Lord will do this for me. Not relying on the promises of the Lord, not relying on what God has promised, but asking Him to do something for your own personal gain then we're falling into the same trap. Instead of having our central joy being the glory of God, then our central joy is ourselves. And this is treating the Lord as no better than an idol. Because that's exactly what the nations around them did. They treated their gods as weapons in battle. If their gods were stronger, they won. That's what they figured. And you can see a prime example of this attitude in the king of Assyria in 2 Kings 19, verse 10 to 13. He says there, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hina, and Eva? This was ancient trash talk. They don't mention their gods, but they did historically see it as a battle of gods. That's why they mention the gods of all those other nations. Their gods were greater, and their gods overwhelmed the forces of those other gods, and that was what caused them to win or lose. So Israel thought that if they could follow the right steps, they could force God's hand. They didn't stop to examine themselves, 
They didn't stop to consider if maybe there was an underlying sin that was causing their problems. Instead, they went straight for the steps that would lead to a quick and easy solution instead of looking to what would glorify God. And boy, did it ever feel good in the short term. We read that as they brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into the camp, there was a great shout. Everyone was rejoicing. This was a battle cry for a holy war that was so loud that it seemed to shake the ground. It was so loud that it was heard in the next camp over, the camp of the Philistines, and the Philistines shook in terror. You see, they knew what the God of Israel was capable of, just as much as the Israelites did. This God had a reputation. He had overthrown Egypt. Their story was a little bit muddled. The Egyptians didn't have plagues in the wilderness, and they figured that there was more than one God, but the core of the message was right. This was a powerful God, and that kind of news travels. Nothing like this had happened before. The ark had remained in Shiloh, and it hadn't gone into battle against the Philistines in the past. But now that Israel's God was in the camp, they were going to have to fight desperately. But regardless of whether you try to force the Lord's hand or not, He is going to carry out His will. And woe on you if God chooses to use that moment to let you fall. We can see in Joshua 7 verse 10 how Israel sinned in the time of Joshua. And we can see their response to God's declaration that they sinned. They looked for the sin in themselves and they pulled it out by the roots. They found out who was responsible and they stoned Achan to death. And further disaster was averted. Israel could have done the same thing. They knew of the problems among them. It was no secret. Eli's sons caused the whole nation to despise the sacrifices of the Lord. Samuel had prophesied that continued rebellion against God would lead for disaster against this family. Israel could have set aside that disaster by recognizing the sins of Eli's sons and doing something about it. But they didn't. And so God let everything fall apart. So God let everything fall apart. The judgment that he proclaimed wasn't carried out by the people And so God himself carried it out. Now you may think this is a warning for non-believers, and there may be some truth to that, but it's especially a warning for believers. God has declared that he will make for himself a holy people. God has said that he will sanctify them. He is patient But as a father disciplines his children, so the Lord also disciplines his people. If they are his chosen, their sin may not shake their standing as his elect. Christ's sacrifice is paid for that once and for all, and nothing can take that from his hand. But their sin can certainly still tear apart their lives. 
If you don't deal with sin in your life, yet you truly believe that you are a believer and chosen by God, you still take this as a warning. God will sanctify. And this will be incredibly painful if we remain stubborn in sin. We read in verse 10, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They had lost 4,000 before, but chose to double down instead of repent and come before the Lord in fear and trembling. They chose to try using the Lord instead of humbling themselves before him and submitting to his desire for their lives by cleansing themselves of sin and realizing their dependence on him for everything. They saw him as a tool for just one purpose, dealing with the problems in their lives, not as someone to truly worship and depend on with their whole beings. And that is so important to remember. It's so important to remember. They saw him as a tool for one purpose, dealing with the problems in their lives, not as a God to truly worship and depend on. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And they had lost sight of that. And so the Lord let them fall, and the slaughter was great. Hophni and Phinehas, their priests, were killed, and the ark was captured. This was a big deal. It was a huge deal. The ark of God was captured. Boys and girls, do you remember what was in the ark of God? The fact that the ark of God itself was captured was a big deal already, but do you remember what was in the ark of God? The ark had the rod of Aaron in it. And that was representing the right that God had given to the priesthood to work as go-betweens, instruments to make his people right with him. What else did it have in it? The ark of God had the container of manna in it. Leftovers from God's providing for them every day in the desert, representing the fact that God provided for his people every day in everything. The Ark of God had the two tablets of the law in it, representing a barrier of love, giving boundaries in which Israel would thrive and flourish. But most importantly, the Ark of God had built into it the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a symbol of the presence of God among them in a special way, showing his mercy to a people out of his mere grace. And the removal of this symbol was devastating to them. We read in our passage that Eli was sitting by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. His heart trembled. In the New Testament, first, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, we read of the difference between godly sorrow and repentance and worldly regret. And we see that worldly regret mirrored in Eli. For Eli, this was too little, too late. 
This response of his wasn't a repentant fear for what he had done. This was regret that he had let his sons take the ark of the Lord and to try use the Lord as a weapon against the enemy. It was the fear of the consequences of what might happen. It wasn't a godly fear. His fear showed that he knew better and he knew the consequences that their actions might have. If he was confident in the Lord's protection, he would have sent them away with his blessing and he would have known that, oh, you'll be fine. But he knew that they were doing something that was wrong. Likely he warned them as he had in the past. We read in earlier chapters how he always said, my sons, what you're doing is not right. But he doesn't stop them. And as is the case before, there are no consequences for his sons. And so all he can do is sit there in fear on the side of the road. Beloved, fear without repentance is rightful fear. For as we read in Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. Eli accepted his fate, but he did not repent. He was afraid, he had regret, but nowhere do we see him repenting. And where there's no repentance, we are rightfully afraid of the consequences of our actions. We're rightfully afraid of what God might do. Eli received word of what had happened, and he fell backwards off his chair in shock. He was so old and heavy, and his bones were so frail that his weight broke his neck, and he died. Phinehas' wife was so shocked by the news that she went into premature labor, and it killed her. As she was dying, her son was placed on her chest, but she took no joy in it. Instead, she named her son Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. She knew what had happened. The loss of her father-in-law and brother-in-law, the loss of her husband, and the Ark of the Covenant all pointed to one thing. The Lord had lifted his protective hand from Israel in anger for their sins. His glory had departed. He had let his Ark the symbol of his presence and his abiding love go into exile. In one day, the prophecy of judgment on Eli's household that we've been reading about for the two chapters prior to this has been fulfilled. We already saw it a few weeks ago in our sermon on 1 Samuel 2 and verse 24, you can see it in particular. Now, this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. The loss of his sons were a sign. His own death and the end of his line was a further sign. The house of Eli would fall into disgrace and his line would disappear. Beloved, you may feel like this is a grim sermon, And it's truly a grim story. It was a warning to Israel. It was a warning that God is not mocked. He's not like other gods. Don't try use him or manipulate him while showing by your life and your heart that you reject everything else about him. It shows the danger and it causes the people of Israel to ask themselves, do you fight using the Lord or do you fight depending on the Lord? And then it seems to leave us hanging. But it doesn't end there. 
In the very passage where we read about the death of the sons of Eli, this actual event that took place in this chapter being prophesied, we read a message of comfort and hope. As we saw before, now this shall be a sign to you that, this will, that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day, both of them shall die. Do you see? The death of the sons of Eli was not the end. Rather, this was the sign that a new day was dawning for the people. And so we read in the verse immediately following that, this shall be a sign, they shall die. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. This was a promise that God was going to purify his people. While the ark might be gone for a time, while Israel might not feel the presence of the Lord or the favor of the Lord for a time, he was not gone. He had not abandoned them. Rather, they had hope for a future. Today, we know that future hope to be most fully and most richly fulfilled in Christ. He was the faithful priest. He was forsaken on the cross that we might never more be forsaken. God may withdraw the feeling of his presence and the assurance of salvation from his chosen ones for a time. And he does. You can read more about what we believe with regards to that in our confession in the Kansas of Dort, chapter 5. Maybe between services, sit down and take some time to read through that. If you have a psalm book, a book of praise. Canons of Dort, chapter 5. God may withdraw that feeling of his presence and the assurance of his salvation for a time, but he will not abandon his people. Those who rely on him through simple faith will never be abandoned. While the signs of the priesthood may have left when the rod of Aaron left, we have a high priest in heaven who is there for our benefit eternally. While the manna may have left Israel, we have a king in heaven who still provides for us every day without failing. While the sign of the commandments may have left for the people of Israel, we have a savior who has fulfilled them perfectly on our behalf and presents us as holy, as righteous, as white as snow before our father in heaven. And while the sign of the mercy seat has left, we have a Savior who is never absent from us. In fact, He lives in us. And He shows us most clearly by the power of the Holy Spirit who works in us, by whose power we cry out for the mercy that God so richly pours out on us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, beloved, let us hold on to that knowledge. Let us worship the Lord rightly, with fear and trembling, for our God is a consuming fire. Because of that, let us put off all our attempts to manipulate Him, and instead present ourselves as living sacrifices, wholly ready to do His will, out of thankfulness for what He's done for us. But let us also know Him as a loving Father, who for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ will never leave us or forsake us, because in Jesus Christ, he perfects our worship. 
And in Jesus Christ, he delights in us and provides us with everything that he requires of us and so much more. He'll never abandon his people. We can depend on that because we can depend on him. Amen.